There are tens of thousands of Protestant ministers, evangelicals, fundamentals, fundamentalist Catholic priests, who could not do what Philip did if their lives depended upon it. If you'll turn to the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, very quickly as you're turning there, Philip is not Philip the Apostle, even though my proper name's concordance in this Bible says so. Philip the Apostle was from Bethsaida. Philip the Evangelist, with the daughters who prophesied, was from Caesarea. Philip the Apostle was one of the twelve, and the twelve in Acts the sixth chapter said, Look you out from among you, the brethren, the disciples, following Pentecost, seven men of good report whom we may appoint to be over this business. And it listed Philip and Nicanor and Prochus, and it listed uh, Stephen, who then went out and did miraculous things and got himself murdered as a result of it. This is a different Philip. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, verse 26, Arise, go toward the south, under the way that goes down to Jerusalem unto Gaza, which devolves down from the hills to the maritime plain and down toward the Mediterranean Sea, which is desert. And he arose and went. I don't know how that was communicated. I think it is audibly. I don't think that Philip thought that the Lord spoke to my heart. Unless I had faith to know that this is while I'm holding in my hand the Word of God, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have been here long ago if I didn't believe that. And in the many, many years that I went through the college and in graduate school and in studies ever since, I've had to go back and ask myself about the original codices, the most ancient manuscripts. And of course, believe it or not, you might think that the most ancient manuscripts are those of the Old Testament, and they're not. The most ancient manuscripts that man can lay his hands upon are those of the New Testament. And manuscripts about the Old Testament are not of such great antiquity. But when you've studied the origin of the manuscripts and their preservation, and how even miraculously some of them were saved in the case of the one of Sinaiticus at the foot of Mount Sinai at the St. Catherine's Cathedral, when some of the monks were actually burning them and using them for trash and using them as wrapping paper for things they were going to ship, and they were saved just in time, and most of it, the Sinaiticus, was saved, but some of it was being destroyed by people who had had these musty old documents around for who knows how long and did not appreciate their value. When you've studied the preservation of those scriptures that have come to us that we know of as the Bible, when you've studied their origin, their translations, transmission from one language to another, and how it took centuries for languages to develop, you come to appreciate the fact that the Word of God is a living witness. What I hold in my hand is paper, ink, and leather. I prize it because it has my mom's signature in it, and it belonged to her at one time, and I'll retire it one of these days because I've already worn out several others. But if you look at the way the Word of God came to our forebears, the original patriarchs, Noah, Moses. And you ask the question, which Bible did they use? Just think about it for a minute. I preached a sermon on this recently in, uh, in Tyler. Which Bible did Abraham use? There was never a time, century after century after century, in the Western world of Christianity, here in the United States, until well after the time of the Revolutionary War, when any pastor could stand in a pulpit and say what I just said to you, let us turn 
and we find in Acts 8, and let us read. Why was that? Because they didn't have a Bible. They didn't own a Bible. Most of them had never seen a Bible. The Bible Belt in the United States, I think, extends from somewhere around Virginia to the northern part of Florida and right straight through where we are today and kind of dwindles down somewhere over here in Kansas or Nebraska. But it doesn't seem to touch New England or New York or the northern tier of states. It doesn't seem to touch northern Michigan and northern Illinois, except maybe in some of the farmland. And it certainly doesn't seem to touch any of Oregon, Washington, Utah, Nevada, or California, does it? California is known as the, as the land of fruits and nuts, as we all know, and I've made, made fun about that over the years. But it's certainly not a part of the Bible Belt. I was trying to get across a point recently of how there can be idols that people can make, and one of them can be this, because someone in his own mind can elevate himself to where his opinion of what he reads here is something that he adores, his idea baby. His thought, his special idea, his interpretation of certain scriptures, and he begins to delight in that interpretation. He seizes upon them, he believes in them, and they become far more important than anything else. And it's very hard because I've met many people and talked to so many hundreds and thousands of people over the many, many years who have very deep opinions about scripture and can be just as in error and just as wrong and far afield as you can imagine. Let's get into this right quickly and see, because there's some very interesting things. I'll read along very quickly. He arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasures. So he's the secretary of the treasury. And had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Therefore, he was a proselyte. Therefore, it was probably a pilgrimage. It was a buying trip. He had something in his possession that was absolutely priceless. It probably would have cost tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in our money today because it had to be laboriously hand-copied. It had a big brass spool on it and a handle and a cap. There were two of those. One rolled on to the other as it rolled off the first. It was a scroll. It was a priceless, inestimable treasure to go back to the treasury of Ethiopia, which is the great nation to the south, upper Nile, south of Egypt. The Ethiopians were almost invariably tall. They were very black, but they had thin aquiline noses and thin lips, and they were of cush, they were not the West African that we are familiar with more in the United States. If you've seen pictures of the Ethiopians and people from the Sudan, they are very black, but they look very different. This man might have been tall. He might have been wearing very expensive clothing. He might have had a very a big emblazoned gold crest of his royal uh, title on him. He might have had a two-wheel or more a carriage of some kind. It was called a chariot, but it could have been chasseled and covered. It was not just he alone with two horses going along. It was probably quite a caravan of people. And they had paused. He had probably give orders, given orders to the camel drivers and the horse drivers and others. He'd pulled up under a tree in some shade, and he was looking at his treasure. And his lips were moving, and he was reading to himself. Was returning, and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Did he have all the scrolls? It doesn't really say that he did. He certainly had Isaiah, but he may have bought more. We don't know how many he had, but probably Isaiah being one of the largest and certainly a very important one, we know he had that much. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join yourself to this chariot. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and he said, Understand what you read? 
And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? What an incredible statement. Instead of looking and saying, who is this stranger? Get out of here. Don't bother me. Guards, why did you let this man near the chariot? God was working with him. We know that these are miracles taking place. God called Philip. God chose Philip. God sent Philip. God did not send Philip to a leader of an organized church with an idea that said, I believe that I'm to be an evangelist. Did he? Did Peter give Philip permission to go? No. Did Peter know Philip was going to go? No. Did Peter ever hear that Philip went? Might have later. But remember, look at Acts the 10th chapter. Peter had not yet been called to Cornelius' house, and Peter had not yet been shown that God was calling the Gentiles, and this man was a Gentile proselyte, and God was showing him through the prophet Isaiah about Jesus Christ of Nazareth being the Messiah, the Savior, and the coming king of the world. Philip wasn't authorized, was he? He wouldn't have been authorized by churches that I know of today. There would be no room for a Philip in a lot of churches I know of today. There'd be no room for a Stephen. They couldn't do it. Oh, there are rooms, and there are places for people who want to tell me they're prophets. I get a never-ending stream, my secretary could tell you, of manuscripts, of thick books, of thick letters. They will come in in great big thick manila envelopes. I get them from Australia, from Canada, from all over the United States. I get telephone calls, and continually it is that people have an idea. They believe that they are really specially called, and they do not do what Philip did, and God doesn't talk to them in the way he did to Philip, but they believe it in their own minds, and their idea is, I've got to get to some leader of an organization so that he can authorize me and he can recognize me and he can tell his people about me and then I can go out and I can have this recognition and I can be the somebody that I feel that I am. I think all of you have run across that type of thing in your lifetime. But believe me, I'm not the only one. I'm sure that, that probably any person who is on television and any leader of any church, I wouldn't even want to begin to look at the mail the Pope must get. If you can imagine who, who goes through all of the Pope's mail. And uh, he must get all kinds of mail from Catholics who aspire to be uh, in a great position. So it just seems to be human nature. And he said, how can I accept some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit down with him. And the place of the scripture where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And that is from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, which we'll go to in a moment. The eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, very marvelous key, did not begin somewhere else and way back over here, or begin to argue, but began right there where the man was reading, and preached unto him Jesus. How did he do that? Out of the book of Isaiah. Can Protestant evangelicals do that? Would they do it if they could? Would you be able to go to a Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, or any other church and hear a sermon on any given Sunday where the pastor says, I am going to preach unto you Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to use a single scripture except from Genesis to Malachi, or Second Chronicles, as it should be in the correct Hebrew order of the, of the texts. I will not use any of the New Testament. 
Do you know that tens of thousands of them who have been to seminary would be utterly incapable of it? They wouldn't know where to start. They wouldn't know how to do it. But prophecies about Jesus Christ begin in the book of Genesis. They go all the way through the Torah, the book of the law. They are replete even in the book of Deuteronomy. A prophet like unto Moses shall God raise unto thee, etc. A star shall arise. Shiloh shall come. A scepter shall not depart from Judah. In thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed. It starts with shadowy types like the boy to be born of the woman would bruise his, the serpent's head, and it gradually begins to focus in on one individual, and finally even his name is given in the book of Isaiah, that his name shall be Emmanuel, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. He preached unto him Jesus from the Torah, from the Old Testament, from Isaiah. And I think that he probably listed a lot of other scriptures after he finished expounding these texts in the book of Isaiah. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? Well, how did he come up with that idea? Only if they'd discussed it. They had to have discussed it. And they had gone on their way. We don't know now, but I think that several hours elapsed. I think that really in several hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, I think that Philip could have done a lot of expounding and explaining. And I know that because God was opening the mind of the eunuch that he was finding very fertile soil for everything that he was saying, it was taking root, the eunuch was understanding it, and I can't believe that Philip just took all that time right in Isaiah 53. He had to go a little back in Isaiah, as we'll do in a moment, a little forward. He had to bring up other points, and the eunuch wanted to be baptized. Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. Some of the best manuscripts don't have that statement in there. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful statement. Uh, it didn't find its way into the text until just a wee bit later. Uh, perhaps it is something that they knew should be there. I can't judge that, but it certainly is not a bad statement. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. Another interesting point. They went down into the water. Philip did not sprinkle or pour. They both went down. It was immersion, which is a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. And he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. I don't know if that means he got down out of the chariot and disappeared in the dust, or whether it means that he took a few steps and disappeared, or whether it means that the eunuch actually saw him go in the air. I really can't tell you, but I know that the Bible tells me that the Spirit of the Lord just took him out of there some way or another. The eunuch saw him no more. That was the end of their conversation. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found as a, at a Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. You can read of him later in Acts 21, and where he had all of his daughters, so he must have been a wonderful family man. There's so much I could tell you about Philip, just as the uh, fellows were telling you about Andrew, and it's so interesting, and I could prove to you very easily by looking at Acts 6 and Acts 21 and these scriptures, that even though there was a Philip who was a member of the original Twelve, this is a different Philip. And this man became a family man with six daughters who prophesied, and he was living in Caesarea, and he stayed there. He began to preach and teach and spent many years apparently doing it because it was quite a time before Luke and Paul and all the rest of them came to his house. Let's go back to Isaiah 53 right quickly, exactly where they were when the eunuch was reading to himself. 
Who has believed our report, and to whom is the, Lord, the arm of the Lord revealed? He shall go up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground, just like Isaiah 11, like a rod or a shoot out of the stem or the trunk of Jesse, which is the lineage of Christ, that is, the father of David. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Philip, probably after he had expounded the scriptures where they were, could have gone back and begun to look back just a few lines and begun to talk about what Jesus looked like, what his manner was, what he was like, because Philip was there on the day of Pentecost. Philip was one of the original converts. He may have been among the 120, but he was not one of the 12. Philip saw the incredible miracle of Pentecost and experienced it because he was one of the first baptized. He might have been baptized among the first 3,000, or a little later on it talks about 5,000 more, and then you see the widows being neglected and Philip being chosen as being an obvious man of great character and good report. What I like to think is that as he began to see these ladies needing help, he just started working. I like to think that they all did, the people who were singled out and ordained as deacons. They began to volunteer, they began to help, they began to work, and when the apostles said, look out from among you seven men of good report, that meant, you know, good report. It meant people reporting, these are good men. Why? Well, not because they were standing around talking about what they knew, but because of how they were serving and helping the brethren, I believe. And so Philip, we know that he was a good man, and God certainly used him, and I believe that Philip knew the Bible, knew the Old Testament scriptures, and was pretty well versed in them, because he was able to expound. And I don't think God would have sent a novice. I think God sent someone to this man who was probably the nucleus around which the Christian Coptic Church gradually emerged, even though eventually, like the Catholic Church, it became apostate and began to go into icons and different things. But back at that time, there was a little uh, seed planted in Ethiopia, just like on Pentecost there were seeds planted that went out to 16 to 20 different provinces, and those disciples who were there went out and just talked endlessly, as you were hearing in the first hour here, about what they'd experienced, what they'd seen, what they knew, what they'd heard. And each of them became a catalyst around which additional people uh, were drawn and began to understand and were drawn to Jesus Christ and drawn to the truth of God in the first century. Each one of them was like a disciple sent out, and there were thousands of them. It wasn't just someone officially authorized to do it. There were thousands of people who were witnesses to what they'd seen, heard, felt, I mean, they saw the great corona, we'll talk about that on Pentecost, of fire on the heads of those apostles and were astounded at what they saw. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. I tell God so often that I am not worthy to be counted as the off-scouring of something under a garbage can. I am not worthy of and by myself of one tiny drop of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I cannot say that I know that no human being is, because even that sounds like some sort of attempt or claim to something in God's sight. But I know that everything is Jesus Christ. I know that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is my life, that he is my Savior, that he is my boss, that he is my God, that he is my soon-coming King, that he is my High Priest, 
I know that he was the very son of the God that put the sun in the sky that makes this world a turn. I was dumbfounded the other day when television told me that 60-some percent of the American people do not even understand how long it takes the earth to go around the sun. An actual national survey of some kind. We talk about sunset instead of earth roll. should be earth roll. We don't know that when we went to bed last night, we traveled 8,000 miles in eight hours, woke up 8,000 miles different in our position relative to the planets and the stars and where we were when we went to bed. We don't think of people 8,000 miles through from us that are upside down, and yet they're on this earth. We don't think about the great creator God that gives us the breath we breathe that makes these jillions of little insects, including yeast spores on my nose or little tiny things that uh, like to inhabit the root of my eyebrows because I'm a host to all sorts of little creatures like we all are. Microcosm, macrocosm. We, we don't think of how we dwell. The Apostle Paul talked about the poet who said, in him we live and move and have our being, and that all of us have bellows in here and we're all sharing the same air, and that as our lungs breathe in, there is oxygen contained in the air, and we are sharing the air in this room. In him we live and move and have our being. Only in a minute and a half or so, some big powerful man hold his head, hand over my nose and mouth, I would be dead. I would be as dead as mown grass. <laughs> I'd have to decay first, but I would be dead. And our life is so transitory. I look at these scriptures, and to me they're not just arguments, they're not just scriptures, it's something far deeper than that, and something that means so very much to our lives. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. I would, I say, give anything. I don't know what. And I would literally give everything I own, move out of my house and give everything I own, because no material thing could ever buy it. If one person in the Church of God could be given the gifts of healing, I mean really the gift of healing. I mean the way Peter had them at the gate called Beautiful. And I would buy a ticket and go to any place that I could get to in this United States with two deaf sons and a grandchild with a lazy eye and a sister-in-law that's crippled up with arthritis and lots of other folks I know that are sick and afflicted and in pain and suffering and many people whose lives are just constant pain. I know Mrs. Tackett has a lot of health problems. A lot of us in this room do. And uh, they're just the aches and pains, but there are lots of debilities and diseases. And there, to me, is, is the block of when Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? And the parading of something before television cameras, and people becoming rigid and falling away backwards, and someone banging them on the head and saying, Be healed, is such blasphemous nonsense that it just makes me sick and ill to my stomach when people are in such desperate need. My son, David, who is here, has never heard his father's voice. My son Matthew, don't feel sorry for me. I mean, they're wonderful young men. They've got great lives. Don't feel sorry for them. They, things could be a lot worse. I would rather have them deaf than blind. There are lots of blind in the world, lots of people that are worse off, people with thalidomide, mothers who were on thalidomide who, who have little fingers sticking out of a stump that's supposed to be an arm. I mean, there are people that are in wretched condition all over the world. It talks about Jesus being bruised because of this, and that he sprinkled all nations, and people on the Passover were not being healed, Paul said, because they looked not at the body, the stripes, the broken, bleeding body of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on earth? I have nothing of which to boast. 
nothing of which to be proud, a lot of which to be deeply ashamed. But I would give anything if just one person in God's church had the gifts of healing and could exercise that gift by a command. I'm at my sister-in-law's bedside a few weeks back, and she had fallen and broken her arm on top of having had an operation on her foot. She's lying there crippled up with arthritis. And I wanted so bad, and I took hold of her hand. I said, Norma, I wish I could say, just get up out of that bed and walk. She looked at me and smiled and tried to put her feet over to the side and, of course, couldn't do it. Do you know what it means? Of course, I know you do. To be a, quote, minister, end quote, and to go in with a vial of oil or a bottle of oil and to anoint someone, even a very, very sick child, and to know that you do not have the power to say, rise and walk. You know, a lot of times you feel woefully inadequate. You feel virtually ashamed. You wish you had that power. And I guess deep down inside, some little voice says, don't make a fool of yourself. Or it says, what if she doesn't get up and walk? And so you don't. But if I knew I could, I would in a minute. Go visit hospitals, go try to help people all I possibly could. Well, I digress a little bit, but these are very profound scriptures. We all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Eternal has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet opened he not his mouth, unlike most of us. We just cry out because of the oppression, the affliction, the depression, the persecution. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. All these other scriptures Philip expounded to the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you think that he maybe turned back a little bit to the 8th chapter? If he went back in the scroll a little bit, if you go back to Isaiah, the 8th chapter, and in verse 13, Sanctify the eternal of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. For he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense. Have we ever heard that before? In the New Testament, in the writings of Paul, Peter, did Jesus himself say it? The head of the corner, the stone upon which they would dash their feet, to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Remember when Christ said in the parables, that they may stumble and fall away backward, and lest I should con they should turn and I should convert them. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Who is saying that? And I will wait upon the Eternal to hide his face in the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Eternal has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Eternal of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion both men as disciples and members of God's church, and to come in the kingdom of God, when at once, as it says, how can a nation be born in one day? But it will happen, even as one human baby comes into the earth in one day, so a nation will be born in one day, God's family, God's kingdom, in the resurrection. Behold, I and the children whom the Eternal has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Eternal of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. He says in verse 20, to the law and the testimony. What law? What testimony? If they speak not according to this word, what word? Matthew, Mark, Luke, 1 Corinthians, the book of Revelation. Not a single scrap of the New Testament was written until 55 A.D., about 24 years after Christ ascended to heaven. 
So what scriptures did Jesus use? What scriptures did the Apostle Paul quote from? We all know the Old Testament. Which scriptures were they that he told Timothy could make him wise unto salvation, which is in Christ Jesus? The Old Testament. What scriptures were extant by which people could be converted when the apostles and the disciples went out and began to preach and teach back then? The Old Testament. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. I won't read all of that, but in the ninth chapter, it talks about how the great light will be seen. Verse 2, those that walk in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the shadow of death, upon them as the light shine. And in verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. And it shall be called Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Eternal of hosts will perform this. He could have gone to the 11th chapter of Isaiah and expounded the rod of the little green shoot that would come out of the stem, meaning the trunk of Jesse, who was David's father, and the Davidic covenant. And what is the key of David? And what is the Davidic promise? And where is the Davidic throne? And who will inherit it? On in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the eternal, and shall make him a quick understanding in the fear of the eternal, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, the way we do. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity, with complete fairness and equality, the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And it's talking both of his first coming and of his second coming as a ruling, conquering king. Not just of his coming to this earth as the Messiah and then having gone into heaven after the resurrection, as Philip was expounding to the Ethiopian eunuch. But in these scriptures, if he thought to go back, and I think that he probably did because he was obviously versed in the scriptures, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. When did Christ do that? In his first coming or during his ministry as the humble carpenter of Nazareth? Not one time. No, he resurrected Lazarus. He healed the sick, the halt, the maimed, and the blind. But he did not put anyone to death. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Then it begins to talk about conditions that will be extant in his kingdom of wild animals made tame. We've all read that. The earth, verse 9, shall be as full of the knowledge of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. And then it talks about the regathering of the outcasts of Israel in verse 12. Judah and Israel, as it says elsewhere, like one stick in his hand. They will be brought back and there will be a highway across the eastern Mediterranean that will actually pale into insignificance so that the original exodus will never again be mentioned, it says in the prophecies but that God's diaspora, this time newly dispersed Jews and Israelites of many, many nations, including the United States of America, will be brought back to a central place in Palestine at the feet of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it says there'll be a highway like as it was to Israel on the day that he came up, came up out of the land of Egypt. There would have been an awful lot that Philip could have expounded to that Ethiopian eunuch, wouldn't there? An awful lot. I like to think that definitely he would have said and ask him to turn ahead in the scroll to Isaiah 56 because I think he would have thought it important to that man from Ethiopia. And he would have read, Thus says the Eternal, Keep you judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. 
Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it. Now, the eunuch had already been a proselyte because he came to Jerusalem to worship. He already knew about the scroll of Isaiah and probably others, so he had been converted to Judaism or the religion of what was called Moses. It wasn't really Moses' religion but the religion that was basically extant in Palestine at that day. He knew about the Sabbath, knew about the Holy Days, and he was probably there for an annual Holy Day, maybe that Pentecost. Who knows? So he knew about the Sabbath. Blessed is the man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of a stranger, a foreigner, a Gentile, that has joined himself to the Eternal, speak, saying, the Eternal has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. I like to think that Philip probably told the eunuch about that because the eunuch could never have children. He might have explained how that horrible thing took place, that many lined up to volunteer, and that many of them died in the operation. We learned that about the ancient Chinese in the court of one of the... Uh, empresses of China not long ago from excavations and from ancient uh, history that archaeology revealed. It was way over half of them that died. There was only a tiny percentage of them that survived, but the rewards, if they could survive a very crude operation at that time, were so great that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them lined up to say, make me a eunuch in the court of the empress. This man may have felt that way. Thus says the eternal unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the eternal will serve him, and to love the name of the eternal to be his servants, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it, and taketh hold of my covenant. What is his covenant? Here are all the things that he spelled out in Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23. The people answer, all the things that you have said, we will do. And it had not only to do with the Ten Commandments, but with many other aspects of God's law. And that was the covenant, the agreement between God and the people. We will do what you have told us to do. And God said, I will be your protector. I will be your provider. I will be faithful to you. I will give you peace in the land, rain in due season. The plowman will overtake the... The, the harvester, rather, will overtake the plowman. You'll have growing seasons a year around. You will not have high taxation or military conscription. You will not have the diseases of Egypt. You'll be disease-free. You will have peace in your land. You'll all own your share of the land. You'll have generations of happy children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. What a wondrous picture that he painted that would be theirs if they would just obey God's laws. God's laws involving the land, putting back what you take out. God's law is involving a way to live with neighbor. God's law is involving a way to live in a family. God's law is involving rearing and training children. All of God's laws involving our physical health for our own good. You ought to eat something that God causes to grow and eat it after it's picked but before it rots. I mean, they're just things that, that, is so, that are so simple. If you really look at it, sometimes I envy the way we lived when I was a boy growing up and went up to visit my grandmother's farm and we talk about the old outhouses and we talk about the kerosene lamps and even though it might seem strange to you to hear me say this I have plowed behind horses I have raked hay and I have shocked hay and I have cultivated and and uh, actually behind horse teams in my time when I was a boy growing up 
and that goes back to an old, old farm. But I've talked so many times of how you could go out and come back absolutely stuffed with the food and the fruits and the nuts and the vegetables. They had an orchard. They had everything you'd imagine. We could talk about that for hours. But to me, it's as I go back and look at the simplicity of life during that time, it's almost like a little foretaste of the way I imagine uh, life will be in the millennium when people are going to live close to the land. And there won't be millions of people like fire ants in a teeming city and great big huge buildings going up and down little black corridors uh, with a greasy cable in a little cage getting out in some floor and going in there and undercutting one another and backstabbing one another and figuring out a way to make money just by playing with a lot of figures or ripping off somebody else. It isn't the way to live. It isn't the way to live in a, in a giant traffic jam in a huge city with the exhaust and the smog and the smoke and everybody just scrambling to get ahead above everybody else. The way to live is out there in your own vegetable garden and out there among your own trees and your cattle and with your children around you and with old grandpa with a handmade musical instrument in an evening sitting around a fire enjoying life. And that's the way God is going to make people li uh, live at some time. There are so many things that I believe that would have been taught to the Ethiopian eunuch, and I've got so many scriptures I couldn't even begin to cover them. He could have told him about the resurrection of the dead in Isaiah 25, 6-9. He could have explained how Christ would heal the blind, the halt, the maimed, and the deaf in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. How he would be the light of the world, Isaiah 62 and verse 20. How Joel predicted the day of Pentecost, and he could have gone through all of that. Let's turn to the 24th chapter of the book of Luke and look at what Jesus Christ said. I'm talking as fast as I know how. Time constraints are what they are, and I am going to hurry. Uh, in the 24th chapter of Luke, verse 13, there was a village called Emmaus, and they were walking along and talking, some of the women. And it came to pass, verse 15, and while they communed together, Jesus drew near. They didn't know who he was, verse 16. He asked what they were talking about. Cleopas, verse 18, said, Are you a stranger in Jerusalem and not knowing the things which have come to pass here in these last in these days? And he said, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And so he began to rehearse all of that with them. They began to rehearse it with him. And they said they found not the body, verse 23. And then he said, verse 25, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, wait a minute. This is Jesus Christ saying this. And when is he saying it? Is it after whatever had been nailed to the so-called cross, had been nailed to the tree, had been nailed there? Yeah, well, what was nailed there was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Not the Old Testament, not the Old Covenant, not the Law of Moses, not the Ten Commandments, just Jesus Christ, our Savior. He was nailed up there. And he didn't represent doing away with the Old Testament. He didn't represent doing away with God's law. He represented a sacrifice for the sins of all of humankind, the Savior of the world, and the one who was qualifying to disqualify the present evil ruler of this world, who is Satan the devil, and the world's first liar, and the very architect of death, to qualify as a future world ruler, to qualify to become our daily high priest, seated at the right hand of the Father, to turn to him and intervene on our behalf, 
to let his body be flayed and to be so tortured and beaten that he became a sacrifice for the sins that we commit that bring about sickness and disease. To shed his life's blood, the life is in the blood thereof, the bloodstream, because we are sinners and have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And to be a sacrifice, behold the Lamb of God, said John. The marriage of the Lamb is come, he wrote in the book of Revelation. Take you out on the tenth day a lamb that is unblemished, and keep it till the evening of the fourteenth. Everybody knows, even the Protestant and Catholic world, that the Lamb of God is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was the sacrificial lamb who was slain, as it says, from the foundation of the world, because that was the plan of God before the world was ever built. So here he himself tells them, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Who are the prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Micah, and all the rest of them. Prophets. Was David a prophet? Yes. Was Abraham a prophet? Yes. Was Moses a prophet? Yes. A prophet like unto Moses. All the patriarchs. Was Enoch a prophet? His book, which is not given the way to Scripture, is quoted in the book of Jude, and that segment of it is inspired. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Yes, they were prophets. Jesus is saying, weigh this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of ascending into heaven to be accepted by God the Father as the sacrifice for all mankind. Slow of heart. Fools. You're slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses... That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? First five books of the Bible. Moses didn't write all that, by the way. The first parts of the book of Genesis are obviously in the 11 hymns of the creation theme, eyewitness accounts. And they were carried down. I think that's another subject. We could take hours to go through it. I believe that there were documents aboard the ark. And obviously Moses didn't write all of Deuteronomy. How can you write about your own death? But God did inspire Ezra, and the copyists know that, that he annotated and put certain footnotes to and did certain edits upon some of those old ancient manuscripts until it became what is called canonical, or that which is a decision in a council or a conference by an ecclesiastical body. The word canon means that. It means a, a, a binding decision made by an ecclesiastical authority. So the church, over a period of centuries, and again, I wish I could talk for two hours on that, just to show you how the New Testament canon began to gradually become accepted because of the people who wrote it, what they wrote, and how they blend together, how the one corroborates another, and how it began gradually to become accepted that the Bible as we know it, the New Testament as we know it, is a part of Scripture. Same thing is true of the Old Testament, and Ezra was the one who apparently uh, put his final touches upon it, and it was accepted in the temple and by all the Jews. He expounded, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I say again, as I said at the beginning, there is not a Protestant minister out of tens of thousands who could do that. And they won't do it, and they wouldn't do it if they could, because there's no way they want their congregations to think that any of that Old Testament is for us today, because people are going to start asking about the Sabbath, and they're going to start asking about clean and unclean. They're going to start asking about the laws of God, and they don't want them asking those questions. I don't 
To me, brethren of God, the Word of God is so absolutely simple that a 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th grader can understand it. It just, to me, just leaps off the page to my understanding when I read these things. Now, I know that, that others think that we're some kind of weirdos or that I'm the weirdest kook or nut that the world has ever seen. And that is strange to me because if I read the Bible, the Word of God, just the way I pick up and read a daily newspaper or the way I read U.S. News and World Report and let the words mean to me what they mean and drink in of it, it's clear. But isn't it strange that it takes a miracle from God to cause that simple process to occur? That is strange, isn't it, when you stop to think about that? The gifts and callings of God and how it is that a human mind has to be unlocked to understand something that absolutely leaps off the page at you. That there's no getting around what we're reading here. If you go all the way through it, then their hearts burned within them, and they said in verse 32, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? What did he open? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Are those scriptures opened to the general so-called Christian world today? As I mentioned last week, Mr. Parkin used to tell us years ago that 90-some percent of the people in uh, Catholic, well, 98 percent are Catholic in France, and 90-some percent of those don't own a Bible. In Catholic countries, people don't own Bibles, even though they're available today, and largely in the United States, in the Western English-speaking world, in Australia and England and so on, people tend to own Bibles, but even in England, not as much per capita as they do here because of the Anglican Church, which is largely a formal church, and people don't have Bibles for private Bible study. It's mostly confined to the United States, and it's really centered in what's called the Bible Belt. I won't go all through the rest of this except to come quickly to verse 44, after he ate before them, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Now, lest you think, and there is an argument that people will come up with here, ah, all things must be fulfilled concerning me. He fulfilled them. They are fulfilled, and fulfilled means ejected, done away, rendered absolutely useless and inapplicable to us today. No, I didn't get time to even scratch the surface because so many of the prophecies are dual, so many of them like in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, the eleventh and twelfth chapters of Daniel, the eleventh of Isaiah that we looked at, Isaiah 2, Micah 4, so many talk of Jesus Christ coming in the power of God Almighty with the holy angels as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so many of them have to do with his second coming and the establishment of his government, as we read in Isaiah 9. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And look at the prophecies like in Daniel 2.44, that the stone that is cut out without hand smote the image on its feet and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there are many, many, many others, but believe it or not, people will argue. And you can see where that scripture right there, people can twist. They don't want anything to do with the Old Testament. They will take that very scripture, but these things must be fulfilled. Ah, so they're fulfilled, meaning done away. There's so many more things that the Ethiopian eunuch could have said to, I'm sorry, that Philip could have said to the Ethiopian eunuch had he gone back and forth through the Bible, through the Old Testament scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ, 
to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission, forgiveness of sins, should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses. They weren't scholars or intellectuals, and they were witnesses of what they'd seen and felt and heard, what they'd been part of. I'll talk to you more about that tomorrow, but I've got to quit. I think I've already gone just a very few minutes over time. And that's as fast as I can talk. Oh, what do we got here? Uh-oh.